I am grateful to be here this morning. Thank you for letting me preach. There's truly nothing I would rather be doing. If you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 19. We are continuing in the book of John. We are in the second half of the trial of Jesus before Pilate. So last week, Paul preached the first half of Jesus standing before Pilate. Jesus has been arrested. He was tried by the high priests and the Jewish leaders, and now he has been turned over to Pilate. And we are in John chapter 19, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 16. But before we read our text, I want to take you briefly down memory lane to a particularly bad period in the mid-1990s, and in particular, a bad song that dominated the airwaves. I don't know how long it dominated, but it was too long. Um, The title of this horrendous, no good, terrible song is Isn't It Ironic by Alanis Morissette. Now, if (laughs) if you remember that song, you already have the chorus going through your mind right now, and you're hating this whole thing already. But... Here's why I bring this up. What's truly ironic about this terrible song is that it's not ironic at all. It's almost as if when Alanis Morissette was writing it, she either intentionally didn't make it ironic or she has no understanding of how irony even works. (laughs) Here's how the chorus goes. I'm not going to sing it. That would be even worse. But the chorus goes like this. It's like rain on your wedding day. It's a free ride when you've already paid. It's the good advice that you just didn't take, who would have thought it figures? Here's the problem. None of those scenarios are ironic in the least. Irony, and you'll understand why I'm talking about this in a second, irony is when there's something more than meets the eye, when there's something beneath the surface happening. Rain on your wedding day is called stuff happens and you probably should have planned better. A free ride that you already paid. I don't even understand that line at all because if, if you paid for it, it's not free. You paid for it. And then good advice that you didn't take is just you being stupid. You should have taken the good advice. So there's no irony there whatsoever. Why does this matter? What does this have to do with John at all? As Paul briefly mentioned last week, John, who wrote the book of John, John loves irony. And if we're going to understand today's passage, we need to understand how irony works. That irony is seeing beneath the surface, seeing that there's more than meets the eye. And so John invites us to look deeper. He invites us to look through the surface to what's truly happening underneath. In other words, if you want to understand this passage, you need to understand irony. So... With that in mind, if you're able, would you stand with me while we read God's word together? John chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, 
Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to, be, to them to be crucified. Lord, thank you for your word and how it speaks to us still today. Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would speak to us now. Move on our hearts so that we see what you want us to see, so that we see you more clearly, love you more passionately. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> The main point of this passage, it's actually more of a question. It is a question, and the question is this, who do you see? That's what John wants to ask us, and he asks us this same question in a bunch of different ways. Who do you see when you look at Jesus? Do you just see a broken, beaten, seemingly helpless Jesus? Is he... Nothing more than just a moral example who's showing us what it means to sacrifice for others. Is he the victim of a political plot that has gotten beyond his control? Or can you see deeper? Can you see, this is what John is asking us, can you see this staggering reality that lies beneath the surface that Jesus is the reigning king of glory? in control of this entire situation, orchestrating every detail to fulfill God's plan. The way that we see Jesus informs how we respond to Jesus. The way we see Jesus, what we come away with from this passage, it shapes how we respond to him. And the Pharisees and Pilate They couldn't see more than an inch beneath the surface. They couldn't see Jesus. They couldn't understand who he was. And so the Pharisees demanded his crucifixion. Pilate, ironically, could see a little more than the Pharisees. He knew something was going on, but he still couldn't see what was truly happening. John, and really the Lord, John wants us to see the true Jesus. He wants us to behold Jesus in all his glory, even in the midst of what seemed like completely dire, out-of-control circumstances. See, if we only see surface Jesus, if we never go beneath the surface, we might feel pity for Jesus, but we won't worship him. We won't submit to him. We won't adore him and delight in him. Because why would we worship someone 
who's just the victim of all these powerful forces around him. We wouldn't worship someone like that. But if we see what's really going on, then we respond with faith, with delight, with adoration, and worship. See, that's the the real goal of this passage. The real goal is that we would respond both with faith in Jesus and worship to Jesus. So with that backdrop set, let's begin to dive into the passage. And John, he gives us three questions, at least three questions, but three primary questions that force us to grapple with who do you see? The first question that John presents us with is this, do you see the sinless king of kings? Look at verses one to three. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate had already tried to release Jesus once and was unsuccessful. The chief priest demanded his crucifixion. They wouldn't let Pilate off the hook, but Pilate isn't done. Pilate isn't done trying to set Jesus free. And so in an effort to appease the chief priests, what he does is he has Jesus flogged and beaten by the Roman soldiers. And so the Roman soldiers, what they did is they, took the, they shaped a crown of thorns. And as I was reading, some people think that it was probably made out of sticks or twigs from the date tree. The date tree has needle-like thorns that can be up to 12 inches long. Can you imagine having that rammed onto your head? And then the soldiers, they put a purple robe on Jesus as if he's some sort of royalty. But instead of treating Jesus like royalty, what do they do? They mock him. They spit on him. They strike him, punch him, slap him. See, all the soldiers can see in front of them is a weak man worthy of being mocked and beaten. And here's where the Lord invites us to see this first profound irony that's happening here. John is beckoning us to look through what's happening to see the eternal realities at stake. So the soldiers, they have dressed Jesus as if he is a king. They have dressed him in mock royalty not realizing that he is the king of kings. That standing before them is the king of the universe. They don't realize that they're mocking and punching and kicking and spitting on the one who sustains everything, who keeps the planets in orbit and the sun burning. They don't realize that they're beating up the Lord of hosts who commands an army of 10,000 times 10,000 angels. Have you ever thought about the fact that if Jesus wanted to, he could have stopped everything? He could have called the angel armies to his aid, and they would have come and destroyed everyone? What a, that's just a mind-blowing thing to me. Jesus could have instantly stopped everything. It says in Hebrews 1 that Jesus sustains the universe, upholds the universe by the word of his power. If Jesus wanted to, while he was being beaten, he could have simply stopped sustaining the soldiers, and they would have died instantly. Jesus was in complete control. He is the king of kings. So why didn't he do that? Why didn't he stop things? Because he couldn't save us if he saved himself. 
Jesus refused to call on the angels. And I can't help but wonder, and this is just me using my imagination, but I can't help but wonder if at some point God had to restrain the angels from intervening on Jesus' behalf. Because imagine them looking down from heaven and seeing their king being mocked and beaten, spit on. Did God have to hold them back? I can't help but just wonder about that. Surely they wanted to go down and unleash fury on the soldiers. So the soldiers, they satisfy their bloodthirst, and then Pilate brings Jesus back out before the Jewish leaders. Look at verses 4 to 6. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Throughout these verses and the ones that come before it, again and again, Pilate has this refrain, and that's, I find no guilt in him. Pilate continues to insist that Jesus is innocent. And so, in an effort really to satisfy the the Jewish leaders and the chief priests and the officers, in an effort to satisfy all of them, he brings Jesus out and parades Jesus before them to mock him. And to say to the Jewish leaders, he's essentially saying, look, look at this guy. Chief priests, you see this guy, this beaten, bloodied guy, he's wearing this crown of thorns, this purple robe. Is this guy really guilty of all that you say? He's trying to show them what a pathetic specimen Jesus is. Should this guy really be executed by crucifixion, reserved for the worst criminals? When Pilate says, behold the man, he's essentially saying, look at this guy. Just look at him. Look at this pathetic guy. You really want me to do something? You think this guy's a threat? And here we have another profound moment in this passage. Pilate knows that Jesus isn't guilty, but he doesn't really understand the sli- in the slightest the full import of what he says. Because not only is Jesus not guilty of the crimes he's accused of, he is sinless, completely, totally righteous, holy, without any stain of sin. There is zero guilt in Jesus, and he abhorred sin from start to finish. Which raises the question... If that's true, why is Jesus standing in front of Pilate as a criminal? It's because he willingly, intentionally, lovingly offered himself up as a sacrifice on our behalf. That's the only reason that Jesus is standing in front of Pilate. It's because he was willing to be there and because he wanted to be there. Isn't that good news? The only way sinners like us could be made right with God is if there's a sacrifice on our behalf. And John, he's forcing the question here, who do you think this guy is? Who do you believe this person to be? This Jesus, who is this Jesus? And it's the question for us. Do you see Jesus as the sinless king of kings, dying for your salvation, worthy of your worship, worthy of your life, worthy of your greatest gifts? Do you see Jesus as the one ultimately in control of all things, 
bringing about God's saving plans? Or when you look at this, do you see nothing more than a good man in the wrong place at the wrong time? Is, he just, is Jesus just a moral, respectable guy who was a good sacrifice, good example of sacrifice? No, God's inviting us to look beneath the surface to see what's really happening. He's inviting you to believe in Jesus as the only Son of God. I don't know everyone here, and so I can only assume that there are some of you here who you don't believe in Jesus, or if you do, you only do so in an intellectual way. And this is an invitation from God. He's saying, look, behold the man, my son, Jesus Christ, your sacrifice. He's the only way to God. And God's inviting you to accept and receive the forgiveness that comes through Christ. And for those of us who do know Christ, this passage is a call to worship, isn't it? We see Jesus, the sinless King of Kings, standing before Pilate, receiving the guilt and the shame that's rightfully ours. Jesus, in this passage, he's doing what we should have been doing, what we should be doing. We should be receiving the guilt, the shame, the punishment. And yet Jesus says, I'll take their place. It's a call to worship and a call to adoration, to love Jesus, to give our hearts to him. And it brings us to the second question that John wants us to wrestle with. So first, the first question is, do you see the sinless king of kings? Second question is, do you see the almighty son of God? Look down at verses 7 to 8. John invites us to see another profound irony. The Jews answer Pilate. They say to him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. What the chief priests are doing is they are appealing to Pilate to uphold the Mosaic law. Part of Pilate's responsibilities, responsibility was to keep the peace. And so the leaders are saying, Pilate, here's this guy, Jesus. We have a law, and that law says that if you claim to be God, then, you're, then you need to be executed. That's blasphemy, and you need to be killed. And you know what? They were right about that, actually. If you claimed to be God, that was blasphemy, and you had to be executed. But there's a big unless hanging on there. Unless you are the Son of God. That's the big unless. The profound irony here is that the Jews are accusing Jesus, the Jewish leaders are accusing Jesus, saying he made himself out to be God, when in reality, that's who he is. He is God. He is the Son of God, part of the Trinity, equal to the Father, equal to the Spirit. And he proved this again and again, doing signs and wonders, raising people from the dead. We saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. We saw him turn water into wine. He fed massive crowds of people with just a few loaves and fishes. God himself is standing before the chief priests, and they they can't even see it. They couldn't see the truth. Instead, they're demanding his crucifixion. And so the question, again, is put to us. Who do you see? How will you respond? When you look at Jesus, who do you see? And how will you respond? All the chief priests could see was a threat to their leadership. And they wouldn't have it. 
Though they should have trembled in fear before Jesus, they're demanding his execution. And in another twist of irony, Pilate, who is not part of God's people, he can see more than the Jewish leaders can see. When he hears, it's interesting, when he hears the accusation that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, what's his response? It says he became even more afraid. Why was that? It probably was because the Romans believed that the gods, all of the gods, the many gods, would take on human form and come and mingle with the people. And so when Pilate hears this accusation that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, suddenly he's like, what is going on here? Who is this person standing in front of me? Do I have someone divine on my hands? And he wants to get to the bottom of this. As I'm reading these verses, I'm reminded only God can open someone's eyes to see the truth. Doesn't that just shine through in these verses? Here we have Jesus, the Son of God, standing before Pilate, standing before the chief priests, and they can't see him. They can't see him for who he truly is. Only God can open a person's eyes to see and believe in Jesus Christ. And so, whether we're praying for our children, praying for our parents, our friends, our prayer should always be, Lord, open their eyes. And we can pray that in faith, knowing that God loves to save. God loves to open people's eyes to who Jesus is. But God has to give them eyes to see. God must do the saving. And that's clear with Pilate. Pilate couldn't really see Jesus for who he was. Look at verses 9 through 11. It says, He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate, he takes Jesus back into his headquarters and he's determined to try to figure out who this guy is. So he says, where are you from? In other words, are you from heaven like they say? Are you the son of God? And Jesus, he, he knows what's going on with Pilate. He remembers that just a few verses earlier, this is, was last week, Pilate had said, what is truth? Pilate isn't ultimately in, interested in truth or who Jesus is. He just wants to basically make sure he's okay. Pilate's interested in himself. So Jesus doesn't answer. And then Pilate, not knowing who's standing before him, tries to play the authority card. This is a bad card generally to play on Jesus. You don't play the authority card on Jesus. Pilate says, don't you know that I'm the one in charge here? It's basically what he's saying. He says, do you not know that I have authority to release you and to crucify you? And with this statement by Pilate, God's inviting us again. Let's look deeper. Let's, let's look behind the curtain. Let's see what's really going on. Who is in charge here? Is it Pilate? Who's the one in authority? Is it Pilate? No, it's not Pilate. It's Jesus. That's why Jesus says, it's interesting, he does answer back here. He says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. 
Pilate doesn't have any authority except what God has given him. And God can take it away in a second. The one in authority is Jesus. And this reminds us of just a profound truth. If Jesus is the one in authority here, and he is, it means from the very beginning, he's been orchestrating every single event. He has been orchestrating all things so that at that moment he is standing before Pilate. Jesus is the one in control of the situation. He is arranging everything so that it fulfills God's plan for salvation. It's not a tragic accident that Jesus is there. He's not the victim of an unjust system. Jesus is the master architect. Jesus is ensuring step by step, that every single detail of God's plan of salvation is fulfilled for us. Jesus knew what was coming. This is where, as you start to think about it, it begins to be truly mind-blowing. Jesus knew exactly what was coming. He knew the horrors of Calvary. He knew that he was going to be swallowed by darkness. He knew that the wrath of God for our sins was going to hit him like a freight train. He knows he's going to be crushed by the punishment that we deserve. And yet he won't turn aside. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't turn aside? He won't change anything. Jesus refuses to change events. Even though he's the one in charge, he refuses to change anything in his favor. He refuses to escape. Instead, he marches straight toward the cross for us knowing his sacrificial death is our salvation. So who do you see here? It's a question of utmost importance. Who do you see? Do you see the almighty son of God? He's our only hope of salvation, our only hope of forgiveness, our only hope of knowing God. He is the only way to know God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way other than Jesus Christ. And from the very start of the book of John, John has made it clear that he has one primary purpose in writing, and that's that we would believe in Jesus, the Son of God. That we would believe in Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you, do you believe in him? And not just in an intellectual way, like, yes, I believe in him in the same way that I believe the Son exists. No, do you believe in him as your only hope for salvation? Do you believe in him as your only hope to get to God? There is no other way other than Jesus. So I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you, believe in Jesus today. Please believe in Jesus. And if you do believe in Jesus, isn't this just another invitation to worship God? When we see Jesus steadfastly marching toward the cross, refusing to turn aside, it's a reminder to worship. How many opportunities did Jesus have to change things? I can't imagine. Given that he is the one orchestrating every event, Jesus could have changed things in a second and gone another way. But he refused to. If he hadn't been faithful, we would have no salvation. Aren't you glad he was faithful? I'm so grateful he was faithful to the death. We have a faithful, obedient Savior worthy of worship, worthy of adoration and love. And this brings us to the third and final question. Do you see the sovereign judge? Do you see the sovereign judge? Look down at verses 12 to 13. 
says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. That's Jesus. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in in Aramaic Gabbatha. After Pilate has this conversation with Jesus, something clicks in him and he wants Jesus off his hands. He wants to be done with this guy, Jesus. He, he knows something more than meets the eye is going on here. He doesn't understand what's going on, but he's determined to release Jesus. The problem is the more he tries to get Jesus released, the more he strategizes, the more opposition he encounters from the chief priests. They cry out in opposition and they threaten him. Here's how they threaten Jesus. They say, Pilate, or sorry, this is how they threaten Pilate. They say, Pilate, this guy claimed to be a king. Who's the king? Who's your king, Pilate? It's Caesar. Jesus claiming to be a king. Oh, that makes him an enemy of Caesar. If you release him, you too are an enemy of Caesar. They're saying, we're going to let Caesar know if you release this guy. Which could be the end of Pilate in multiple ways. It's clear here that the chief priests are going to use whatever tactics they need to to have Jesus crucified. And so Pilate brings Jesus out in front of the leaders in the crowd, and he sits down, and notice the term that's used. He sits down where? In the judgment seat. And he's going to render his verdict upon Jesus. But that raises a question that John wants us to wrestle with. Who's the judge here? Who really is the judge in this situation? Is it the one sitting on the judgment seat? Is it Pilate or is it Jesus? It's Jesus. The great, here's the great irony. Here's the, the profound truth buried in these verses. Jesus truly is the sovereign judge. Pilate is not the judge. Even though Pilate sits in the judgment seat, he is not the judge. Jesus is the sovereign judge over all the world. And Jesus is the one. He has the right to judge Pilate. He has the right to judge the chief priests. And someday he's going to return. And he's going to judge everyone and render his verdict. That's a scary thought, isn't it? At least it can be. The thought of Jesus returning in judgment. So what's our hope there? Here's the hope. Because Jesus insisted on going to the cross and allowed himself to be judged. He took the judgment we deserve. Jesus allowed himself to be judged, and he took the judgment and the punishment we deserve, so that when he returns, and he will return, and he will judge the living and the dead, those who have placed their hope in Christ, there's no judgment left for them. Aren't you glad that Jesus took your judgment? John who wrote this book, also wrote the book of Revelation. And in Revelation, he sees the end. He sees what happens after Jesus comes back. And he gets a glimpse of heaven, and he sees Jesus on the throne. And here's how he describes it in Revelation 5.11. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne. This is the throne, the judgment throne. Then I heard around the throne, and the living creatures... And the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, 
Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Pilate may be sitting on the judgment seat, but there's only one who's going to be sitting on the throne. And that's Jesus. And again, God is calling us to look at the identity of this person, Jesus Christ, and to respond appropriately. And so the question is forced on us. Do you know that Jesus is the judge of all the earth? He is. And that is crucially important to you. Do you know that he's returning and he's going to judge the living and the dead? Jesus isn't just a moral example. He's not just an example of a sacrificial death. No, he's the one sitting in judgment. And if you've hoped in Christ, if you've believed in him and his perfect sinless life and his death on your behalf and his resurrection, then good news. When he returns, just as the angel of death passed over the firstborn Hebrews in Egypt, judgment will pass over you. Isn't that good news? Jesus took your judgment and judgment will pass over you when he returns. But don't be mistaken. Because Jesus allowed himself to be utterly humiliated and judged, God has exalted him as the judge over all. The response to this should be worship. If, if we believed in Christ, the response should be worship. If you don't know Jesus, Jesus, the response should be trembling. If you know Christ, though, the response is worship. But Pilate and the Jewish leaders, they can't see any of this. They're blind to the true identity of Jesus. Look down at verses 14 to 16. Pilate speaks to the chief priests. He says, now... First it says, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And now Pilate speaks to the Jews. He said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. In this final crescendo, in this final climax of a scenario, both Pilate and the chief priests are saying way more than they realize. When Pilate says, shall I crucify your king, he's really intending that as an insult to the, to the Jewish leaders. He wants to insult them by continuing to insist on calling Jesus the king, little realizing Jesus is the king. His insult is actually the truth. And when the chief priests respond and they say, we have no king but Caesar. When they say this, they're denying God as their true king. And they're hitching themselves to political power. They're hitching themselves to Rome rather than the true God. And it's because they're blind to the true identity of Jesus Christ. They're blind in such a way that they choose Caesar over their Messiah. The way we see Jesus informs how we respond to Jesus. We've seen Jesus as the sinless one. We've seen him as the son of God, and now we see him as the sovereign judge overall. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise, worthy of our adoration. And coming to communion, is, it's an opportunity to remind ourselves of who Jesus truly is. And to freshly place our faith in him and our trust in him. He's our sinless king. 
who died in our place. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that's what we're remembering. We're remembering who he is and what he did on our behalf. So let's pray together, and then we'll take communion together and worship.